It has already been asserted, and certainly I know we'd all agree that it is a blessing and quite a great privilege to be able to come together, even as we are this evening, to feel the blessedness of an hour such as this one, to be removed at least somewhat from the overwhelming burdens that can sometimes bother us so much in the day, and to focus on those matters of eternal import, to focus on those things in the Word of God to be of great help and assistance to all of us. You probably noticed in light of the title of the lesson announced in the bulletin, Gary already drew our attention to the word faith as it occurs in the wording of that title. And you can see behind me on the wall tonight, we're going to cast a spotlight on faith facing a fiery furnace. No doubt you're already mindful that we're going to be encamping in Daniel chapter 3 for much of our study tonight. So let me encourage you to go ahead and be taking your Bible and turn to Daniel the third chapter And we, in fact, will be investing the entirety of our lesson on that chapter of the Word of God. The book of Daniel is, in many ways, a powerful and rather remarkable book. I know there are many aspects of all the Bible books that could be highlighted, but surely this one occupies a place that just draws us to it. Because in these 12 chapters of the book of Daniel, we see just a few of the things I might quickly list for you. No no doubt we easily remember that in this book we have a panoramic view about the development of what you and I would now call history. How that worldwide empires would in fact develop and they would rise and they ultimately would crumble and fall away as they'd be replaced by another one. And one by one we're able to study in this book the rise of the Babylonian Empire the kingdom that would follow it, namely the the Medes, and then following them, the Persians. Following them, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And finally, the Roman Empire as well. That, of course, was in ascendancy when Jesus, in fact, walked upon the planet. But not only do we see that aspect of Gentile history, we also find in this book a rather incredible and scintillating view of prophecy. We find in it, in fact, some minute and detailed prophetical matters. And as those things came to pass, it offered for the folks of that day a reminder that God was in control of all of it. Perhaps two final things would be this. We find also in this same book a rather riveting discussion of faithfulness in the life and times of some rather young people. And they, throughout the ages, have served as a remarkable example of what faithfulness looks like in every age, and that includes even today. It is maybe one final observation that we find in this book an incredible reference to the unsurpassed continuance of the church of our Lord. It's in this book we read this verse that once established, the kingdom of God would never cease to be. And thus today, aren't we comforted by the fact that God is in control of those matters related to His kingdom especially, and we realize its continuance to be sure. With all of that having been said as a bit of an introduction, we're going to encamp only in chapter 3. So we're going to jump past chapters 1 and 2 and really spend our time tonight appreciating the features of chapter number 3. I thought that to do that... I'm going to organize the sermon a little bit unusually compared to the way it's typically done. 
As you know, quite often the way that we as preachers take care of these lessons is there's a particular passage or text and we in fact refer to it and develop the lesson in a number of points based upon it. Tonight I thought we would let the Bible by and large take care of all of that for us. I'd like to read the first seven verses of chapter 3 and we'll only pause to make a few brief comments thereafter, but I think the text itself will have so much to say. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was threescore cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together under the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried out to you, it is commanded, O people, nations and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And whosoever falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Pausing at that point for the information I'll share on the slide. You can immediately see that in the prior chapters, we were at least brought to appreciate that the Babylonian monarch at this time, the king was a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Now that rather long name is certainly one that has been a part of our Bible story since we were young. And we've learned to think a great deal about the kind of person that he was. But we quickly learn as chapter 3 unfolds, that verse 1 tells us, He gave order for an image to be constructed. We might call it a rather sizable statue. This image, you'll notice, verse number 1 tells us, was six cubits wide. Translating that to our more modern system of measurement, it was approximately nine feet wide. So the image was sizable just in its width, but notice the height. Verse 1 goes on to tell us it stood three score cubits high. That's 60 cubits, which would translate to approximately 90 feet. This image stood nine stories tall. It was huge. It was vast. You can imagine the attention that must have been directed to it by various individuals over the course of the weeks and months that had to have gone into its construction. You can't build a statue that's nine stories tall and nine feet wide in a couple of hours. 
Surely, as the particular artisans and craftsmen of the Babylonian Empire constructed it, no doubt a great deal of attention was directed to it. Did you notice in verse 1, it was set up on the plain of Dura? That's a fairly well-known area, and even to this day, it has been excavated many times. And verse number 2 then will say this, As this image was constructed, you might well appreciate that at first sight, what was its purpose? For after all, you could erect an image for a number of reasons. Maybe it was to draw attention to himself. Maybe it was an image of Nebuchadnezzar. The text doesn't say that. But we quickly learn in verses 2, in verses two and 3 that at its dedication, it was an amazing event. You'll notice that lots of people were invited, and I suspect it was more a command, that you will come and adore the matter surrounding this dedication. Mention was made of princes, governors, captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and rulers. All were told to come. And they were urged, you see, to honor and adore the nature of this image. You'll quickly observe in verse number 3, the first word of that verse may rather innocently pass by us. It's the word then. The invitation had been received by all of these peoples, and the text says, Then they came. They, in fact, did not choose to do otherwise. In light of all the people that were gathered, you might keep in mind the Babylonian Empire was a fairly sizable one, so no doubt this would involve a lot of people coming to the place wherein the image was set up. As you'll see on that slide, the next thing we learn, starting in verse number 4, is this. At the time of the dedication, a herald was sent forth. That word herald is simply a word in indicating that there was a rather public announcement. There was, in essence, an assertion, and this is what it said. O people, nations, and languages, at what time ye hear the music? And you'll notice a number of particulars was, in fact, mentioned. At what time you hear it, you will fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now we learn something interesting. This statue was not simply an honoring of Nebuchadnezzar. It was intended for worship. It was intended that those who would in fact make direction to it would engage in the appropriate adoring and worship of it and of that for which it stood worship was going to be involved. It is with that in mind that really takes you through the remainder of that opening set of verses. And in that too, it also leads us to the threat that was also mentioned. You'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar said this, not only did he invite you to worship, he, inv he demanded it and he said this, if you don't, I'm going to cast you into a burning, fiery furnace. In essence, an ultimatum was presented. You either worship or you die. And you worship what I tell you to worship, and you worship when I tell you to worship it. When you hear the music, this is what you have to do. The first lesson I would pause to invite us to consider is perhaps almost evident, but I'd say it isn't always something we understand. It has to do with idolatry. We all know that that's what was being encouraged here. You worship this image. You worship that for which it stands. 
But let's face it, the principal issue at hand is what worship is. We live in an age and a time, and we all know it well, when the vast majority of people do not understand what worship is. They don't. More often than not, the conception is worship is a feeling. It's something that constitutes the way I feel about a certain position in time. The Bible doesn't define it that way. It's true that our spirit must be involved in proper worship. The Lord demanded that in John 4.24. But worship has to be done in truth. It is then such that you'll notice what happened in these days that we have just read in Daniel chapter 3. Isn't it true that the Bible has always highlighted the incredible importance of worship? Our God is a jealous God, Exodus 20 verse 5, and reiterated again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Not only that, you might appreciate the words of Joshua 24, 19, wherein as Joshua approached the time of his death, he point blank told them how necessary and vital it was to worship only the God of heaven and not anything or anyone else. That kind of observation leads me to perhaps state the obvious. Anybody who thus would have a desire to please the God of heaven was going to be in a moment of decision. Isn't that true? Nebuchadnezzar said, I've got to worship this, but yet in loyalty to God, I cannot do it. Again, can you imagine that a person who knew the God of heaven and was apprised of His will, and yet perhaps one of those judges or sheriffs or counselors, and you were told to come, and here you are. When you hear the music, you'd better worship it. It would certainly be a moment of decision. It would be a time that would cross in terms of determining what one would do. As you can see on that slide, you and I know well that worship must be directed only to God. The Lord said that in Matthew 4. It is told us again in Revelation 22. I would invite each of us then to ponder the circumstances about idolatry. Is it still possible to be an idolater? Of course it is. Anything, anyone that you and I would then serve or in any way offer obeisance to that would be other than God makes us an idolater. And the New Testament is filled with passages that warn us about the danger of it. Consider this one in 1 Corinthians 6. In verse number 9 of that chapter, Paul addressed the church in Corinth. Note, he was talking to the church here. A group of people who knew the Word of God, perhaps like you and I would. And to them he said, Know ye not, he asked that rhetorically, But know ye not, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, Paul, I understand that. That's nothing new. Those that are unrighteous won't go to heaven. But then he said this, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor covetous. None of these will go to heaven. Now among that list, we have no problem with perhaps idol with adulterers and fornicators, but the second element in the list was an idolater. What was capable then is surely still capable now. 
we can be guilty of this. We can be guilty of turning our attention to that which is not worthy of worship and giving it the attention that's only due to the God of heaven. No wonder in that connection, I've asked you to notice that final verse in the book of 1 John. 1 John 5 verse 21. There, John again in this late New Testament point said, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That was a danger that could well be problematic to those of John's day, and it certainly could still be to us as well. Not only is the matter of idolatry standing rather openly before us, but it now brings us to verse 8 of this chapter. So with the situation that we've just described in verses 1 to 7, let's begin reading in verse 8. And let's read through verse number 13. Daniel 3, 8 to 13. Wherefore, at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. The opening verses of the chapter had stated before us the erection of this image and also now the dedication of it, wherein there was an ultimatum presented. As we transition into verse number 8, it says, Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near. Now that word Chaldean refers to a Babylonian. So that's the people in the kingdom over which Nebuchadnezzar was ruling. And you'll notice that in this particular description, we quickly observe the following. There were some people in the Babylonian Empire who were aware that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not worshiping that golden image. When the music played, they did not bow. When the music played, they did not offer obeisance to it. When the music played, they did not direct attention in worshipful matter toward that image. And other people watched what they were not doing. They were aware that these three were not directing their attention the way that had been commanded. Isn't it interesting that verse number 9 says, These who witnessed that, they didn't keep that information to themselves. They went and told the king, Nebuchadnezzar, didn't you give an ultimatum that the golden image is to be worshipped? And surely he would have said yes. Didn't you say that whoever is not worshipful is to be cast into a fiery furnace? And he had said that. And so these Babylonians were quick to say, Don't you know, there are some people in your kingdom, and in fact, they occupy high civil authority positions. You have placed them in positions of authority over the kingdom. 
and they are not worshiping the image. When the music plays, they don't worship. What are you going to do about it, King? I added that last part myself. You'll notice the information that they shared to the king. It was very incriminatory of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can see on this slide, I've asked you to consider an immediate lesson. I've entitled it, The Response of the World. The Babylonians knew, some of them at least, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not doing. They knew what the law had said, and they knew that these devotees of God were not doing it. And they did not keep the information privately to themselves. They, in fact, it seems, with an element in haste, brought that information to the king. Do you suppose they wanted to get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in trouble? Of course they did. Did you, do you suppose that they had a desire for themselves to occupy the positions that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had? In the previous chapter, chapter 2, we have record there, of course, that there was that interesting scene where Daniel interpreted the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. That image that he saw in the dream, and as Nebuchadnezzar's dream was interpreted, he at least at that point had an element of interest in what Daniel stood for. And as that chapter rolls onward, he in fact elevated those people to great position. And now you notice, in the very next chapter, the Babylonians were happy to see that position taken from them. This information shared in verses 9 and following brings you and me to think about it this way. We should not feel as if our lot will be any different. The world, by and large, is not favorable to the things of God. It never has been. I freely confess, we in this nation, for now a little over 200 years, have been blessed to live in a place where the government does endorse serving God. But this is the exception, not the rule. By and large, the kingdoms of men have frequently been found unfavorable to the things of God. Ask the nations in the Far East even today. People who live in China or Cambodia or Burma or one of those places. Ask people that live in the Indonesian islands. Ask people that live in various places in Africa. We happen to be blessed to the point where we have grown up and all of our lives have known a government that was not openly opposed to Christianity. It may not always be that way. In fact, you would anticipate that as kingdoms rise and fall, if God lets this earth stand, a few hundred years from now, this country won't be like this. It's fair to say that in this place, they knew well the Babylonian monarch was not in favor of loyalty to God. He wanted the image worshipped, and he was prepared to put to death those who did not do it. No wonder in that connection you'll notice on that slide, we shouldn't be at all alarmed when the world watches what we do and what we don't do. There are certain things a Christian won't do, though the world openly does it, thinks nothing of it. And they will share information about what we choose not to do, and it will, in fact, be used against us when they see the opportunity and the benefit. And that will, more often than not, be a frequent thing. 
No wonder then our life has to be a dedicated matter to truth because the world is not going to support Christianity. Didn't Jesus put it like this in John 15, 19? The world has hated me and they will hate you too. That's just the general rule of thumb. That's what we have to anticipate. Paul put it like this in 2 Timothy 3.12, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Sometimes that persecution will come from those not connected to the government. I, I agree. But sometimes it will be prompted by them expressly. As you and I close that slide, perhaps one final thought. When they shared with Nebuchadnezzar the fact, here's some people that are not worshiping the image, how did he react? Did he take it smoothly? Verse number 13 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury, he was very angry about it. The Hebrew word that's used there, or perhaps I should say the original word, indicates a very strong emotion. He did not take this lightly. He responded with fury. He responded with rage. He had invested, no doubt, a fair amount of government funding to erect this image. And it was his intent that his commandment relative to it be obeyed fully. And when it was not, he responded with anger, with rage and fury. That takes us, of course, to the next set of verses, beginning in verse 14. As we move in that direction, could I suggest then that I now read those verses, and as before, let's make some comments about them. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. On the slide before you, we then appreciate this. When that information was brought to King Nebuchadnezzar, he called these men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were sent for by the king, and they were brought to him. In verse number 14, they had a personal conversation with him. He directly asked them. It was a question they could not evade. It was a question they could not get out of. Did you note the wording? Verse 14, can you imagine the scene when here he was on his throne perhaps and they were positioned right before him. And he said, gentlemen, is it true you do not serve the gods of Babylon? You do not worship the image I have set up? 
Talk about a moment of decision. Talk about a moment wherein there was no doubt an element of great consideration. But you'll notice that even before they answered, Nebuchadnezzar continued his discussion to them. Verse 15, he said, At what time you hear the music, if you worship, everything's going to be well. But if you don't, that very hour I'm going to cast you into a burning, fiery furnace. I wonder if their heart raced a bit. I wonder about the moment of decision that they were now in. They perhaps had thought about this knowing that they had been asked and in fact demanded to come and now the eventuality is here. And face to face with Nebuchadnezzar, he says, if you will worship when you hear the music, everything will be fine. And I suspect he would have given the order perhaps with a snap of his fingers and music would have started playing. He could have watched them bow. He would have permitted them to leave and all would have been fine. But you'll notice they answer before he has to do anything more. Verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, King, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. Now that word careful there carries the following idea. They're saying, we know very well what we're saying. We're not insane. We're not delusional. We are very mindful and carefully considered of what we're about to say. Verse 17, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of thine hand. But if not, you need to understand, King, we are not going to worship your image, and we're not going to worship the Babylonian gods. And that's all they had to say. What courage we find in these three youths. What directed faithfulness we discover in them. You'll notice on that slide, it brings us to a third lesson. A lesson that reminds us about the character and the integrity that goes with service to God. We learn immediately the following, service to God is of the highest priority. You can't bow before the image and claim to serve God at the same time. They knew that was not possible. Now Nebuchadnezzar would have had no problem with it. Did you notice he referred to the gods of Babylon, however many of them there were. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew there was one God in heaven, and He is supreme ruler over all things. Today, service, of course, must be of that understanding as well. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6.33 about the nature of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? and all these things should be added unto you. Thus, even the Lord Himself affirmed that the highest of priorities must be in service to God, and there is no competitor to Him. In Matthew 6, 24, just a few verses earlier in that same chapter, Jesus said, "...you cannot serve God in mammon. You cannot turn your attention to what is physical or fleshly or carnal, and hold that in the esteem to which you hold God." Not only that, you might appreciate one final thought. Human decrees or human appreciations are often such that 
they violate the law of God. It was true here. Nebuchadnezzar gave this edict. You bow before the image when you hear the music. Daniel and his three friends couldn't do that. They served a higher power, you see. Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler on earth. He is not the ruler in heaven. And they were determined to worship only the God of heaven. Isn't it fascinating then to appreciate the kind of position that these were in? Because it immediately brings us to a fourth lesson. Not only is service to God that which they understood well, but it also points us to this. The human tendency to rationalize things. You give a human being just a few moments of thought and he or she can come up with a way to excuse almost anything. That was true in the first century. It was no doubt easily true in the days in which we're reading here in Daniel. And it surely is easily true today too. What do we mean by this? Think how easy it would have been for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to say this. Well, why don't we bow before this image and we will thus appease the king, but we really won't be worshiping in our mind. We'll just physically go through the act of bowing, but we really aren't worshiping because our mind is not in it. And then we'll leave and we'll be able to teach others about God. And we'll help them come to know the great God that we serve. And you see, if we don't bow, we won't ever get to teach because we'll die. Wouldn't God much prefer us to live so we can do more of His will? Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Problem is, it's completely wrong. You can't go through an outward act that's absolutely disobedient to God and claim that your mind is not engaged in it. You purposefully are doing what He told you not to do. On the other hand, you're purposefully doing what the King told you to do. You can't rationalize things away like that. Another fine example of that came in the days of the New Testament. You and I know that as the New Testament draws to its conclusion, we learn about a group of people. It's the backdrop to the book of 1 John. It's in fact somewhat of the backdrop of the book of Colossians. Those Gnostic people. Now you and I today may think, well, we aren't faced with Gnosticism today. But the Holy Spirit saw fit to have those books permanently recorded because that kind of thinking is still pretty popular. Here's what the Gnostics said. The Gnostics reason as follows, God makes spirits, and spirits are perfect because God made them. Now the flesh in which those spirits abide, now that flesh is weak. That flesh can be sinful. That flesh, you see, can often choose to do what God says not to do. And so they made this great distinction between the Spirit on the one hand and the flesh on the other. And that led them to then claim that because in my mind I know what the Spirit is and I know the truth of that Spirit, I in fact can appreciate the following. In my mind, I know that certain things are wrong, but if I'm guilty of it, it's only the flesh that's doing it. It's not my mind. So I might commit adultery with another man's wife. And all the while, it's the flesh doing that. But my mind knows better. I'm okay with God. What nonsense to think that you could distinguish that and thus 
participate in immorality and claim that the flesh is not that the flesh is only what's doing it. The mind is not doing it. Today, have you ever heard about situation ethics? Where people will reason in such a way that here's a particular conundrum or a particular difficult situation and I will follow the path of love at this moment. And I'll be okay even if I ultimately do in it what God otherwise would not permit. The Bible never endorses it. Never. Not once. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew this. They didn't try to rationalize it away. They frankly told the king, we will not worship your image. Do to us what you want. We will not worship it because that's wrong. God said that it is, and that settles the matter. They didn't try to excuse it, justify it, make some kind of other appreciation that would make it okay. Like I said, we as humans are pretty good at trying to justify things, aren't we? Because it makes us feel better. You'll notice that verse 18 ended with a confrontation. Here they were in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. He said, if you'll bow down when the music plays, everything's fine. But if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And they said, we're not going to bow down. I wonder what happened next. The rest of the chapter is what describes what happens next. Let me read verses 19 to 30 to close the chapter, and that will also end our lesson. What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Was he true to his word? Let's see. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then those men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished, and rose up in haste, and spake, and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king, he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire, and the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god 
except their own God. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Don't you thrill at that record? To his credit, Nebuchadnezzar did exactly what he said he would. He promised, I'll throw you into a fiery furnace, and he had it heated even one-seventh hotter than normal. So hot was it that some of the Babylonian men that were trying to cast them in, the flames in fact engulfed them and put them to death. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in this fire. And did you notice? They were bound before they were cast into it. They were wrapped up pretty tightly. But suddenly in verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar speaks again. Didn't we cast three men into this furnace? They agree we did. But Nebuchadnezzar said, I see four. And did you notice they were no longer bound? They were loose. The flames consumed the ropes or the other things that had bound them, but it did not hurt their clothing. It did not hurt their hair. It did not hurt anything else about their person. Only what bound them. And now... Nebuchadnezzar makes the observation, that fourth one that I see, these walking around in there, that fourth one, has the appearance of the Son of God. How many times have we thought about that fourth person appearing there? You'll notice on that slide, it leads me to say this. Our fifth and final lesson is things are always better with God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in faith had faced a fiery furnace, and while in there they were comforted and consoled by none other than the God of heaven Himself. And you'll notice that as the things transpired, they ultimately were brought out completely unharmed. Now earlier they had made the statement, Our God is able to deliver us, and He did miraculously on this occasion. But you'll notice their faith went even beyond that. If He don't, they still agreed, we're not going to bow before your image. As the chapter ends, what a great blessing they were then able to be in so many additional ways. Notice they were promoted. And Nebuchadnezzar even defended their God and said their God is the only God because nobody else can deliver after this sort. How many times had he witnessed people or things cast into a fiery furnace and it had been consumed, but this time their God delivered them. Our God will deliver us. Whatever lot is ours, our faith needs to be strong enough to withstand it. If our government gives decrees that are against the laws of God, we can't rationalize it and try to say we can serve both. It doesn't happen that way. We need to be faithful and strong enough to serve the Lord and have the confidence that things will be better with us if we do. The book of Revelation is a final record in the book of God to that lesson, isn't it? This evening, as we draw this lesson to its conclusion, I hope we've each been motivated to develop a faith that can face a fiery furnace. 
a faith that in fact will be the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. This very night, if there would be someone in this assembly that would wish to make an obedience to the gospel in a public way, we would like to invite you to come and assist you in whatever way we can. Perhaps that's prayers of strength. Maybe that's a statement of appealing to God for forgiveness of sins of which you have been guilty. But we want you to know that God loves you and that we want to be of service. Faith that could face a fiery furnace, that's something to think about, isn't it? May we have it. May we appreciate and love that kind of faith because we see in it what strength of life and character that makes. Tonight, if we could be of help in some way, won't you come? Well, we stand and sing the selected song.